Welcome to Bible and Stuff, a podcast about the Bible and stuff. I'm Glenn. <laughs> and I'm Tanner. Uh, and guys, today we are lucky to have a special guest on the show with us. Mr. Dustin Benj is joining us. Um, I'm just going to give a rundown of who he is. Um, I think officially he's... I think officially he's Dr. Dustin Binge. Dr. Dustin Binge. Yes. We, yeah. Well, we just assume this first name basis with most people. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> we, we don't, well, we don't, I am just thankful. I was sweating the whole time. I was like, Tanner, please don't call him dusty or any, like, don't, <laughs> don't get so informal. So dusty. What's up? Uh, yeah, no, he was, he was well-dressed. He was in a nice, uh, office at Southern seminary where he works as you're about to tell them. Uh, so I tried to keep it, I tried to keep it under wraps today and just yeah. really, be, no, I, you did a good job, but the conversation was great. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's an interview that I was looking forward to then. And I'm, I'm very happy with, um, with how it went. It was very encouraging to me as yeah. well. Yeah. Well, guys, if you don't know who Dr. Dustin Benj is, he is the Associate Professor of Biblical Spirituality and Historical Theology, and he is the Vice President of Communications at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He also serves as a Senior Fellow of the Andrew Fuller Center for Baptist Studies and is the author of numerous books, including the one that we're going to be talking about today, which is The Loveliest Place, The Beauty and Glory of the Church. And man, awesome. was that a mouthful, right? Yeah. This guy, yeah. He's yeah. he's invested. He's moving and shaking. <laughs> he's got Dustin's doing a lot of great things. But uh and we got to talk to him, which was awesome. So let's just jump right into it. Well, guys, like we said, we have Dustin on the show today. We are really excited to have him here. Uh Dustin, thank you for joining us. Uh we're just we're so excited to talk about the book and, and get to know you more today as well. Well, thanks, guys, for having me on. It's it's a privilege to join you. Awesome. Well, as we've already said, the book's called The Loveliest Place, The Beauty and Glory of the Church. I think a good place to start would be why did you why did you write the loveliest place? And you know, there's there's tons of other books about the church. What what kind of did you take a unique angle, or were you trying to hit a certain spot that maybe isn't covered as often? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I think at the, um, the outset of any kind of writing project, one has to ask themselves, why am I writing this book? Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I've asked myself that over and over and over. And even when it was published and I held it physically <laughs> in my hands, I was asking myself, why did I write this book? And yeah. so let me just say at the outset that I'm writing here for myself. Mm. That was preeminent. Uh, having been in ministry for over 20 years now, uh, I've seen local churches at their best and their worst. And I've just become convicted that it's all too easy to become really hardened over time as we give and give and give ourselves with really nothing seemingly in return. And people disappoint you at every turn in the church, Mm -hmm. Um, and they just seem to hurt you again and again. But deep down, I love the local church, despite Mm -hmm. all of those things. And I've become convinced that I have to shift my perspective from my own self-interest, which often just to be honest, fuels sometimes my disgruntlement toward the church Mm -hmm. and begin to look at the church in a way that the Scripture describes her. And so this book is about that. Uh, This book is for all those who seemingly struggle sometimes to see those redeeming qualities within the church, those who tirelessly serve within her ministries who are dismayed by her apparent failures or those who have rare, unsustainable glimpses of her beauty, uh, this book is really for that person. And so the, the singular goals here is to awaken the affections, not affections for form and methodology and structure and organization and programs. As you said, there's so many books on the church, and they seem to all be about methodology, structure, programs, organization, and all the rest. But what I wanted to write is a book that was encouraging and awakening the affections 
for who the church is and why the church exists. And I'd never really seen really anything uh, in the modern context that we're living in um, that explored the subjects of the beauty and loveliness of the church. And so there you have it, the uh, the loveliest place. That's great. That's yeah, awesome. I, I, I love that. Um, I, I think that's a super helpful thing that we need to talk about because uh, I feel that same way you kind of talked about where I, I deep down love the local church and I have it really since I became a Christian, but sometimes it's pretty easy not to like her very much, you know, like mm. <laughs> I don't know that's mm. a cliche, but it, sometimes it does feel like, all right, are we making any progress here? Is, is sure. everything still, bro- I mean, that's, you know, I think that's true of a lot of things in the world where you, you think like, okay, we've regained some ground and then, you know, sin rears its ugly head and, and you have to deal with that all, all over again. But all that to say, we do need these reminders that mm. Christ sees the church as beautiful. Christ loves his church and there, therefore we should love the church. And it does mm. so many good things for us as Christians. They don't come without struggle and hardship, um, but they are irreplaceable by anything else. Mm. And so I, I'm, I'm very thankful for a, a book like The Loveliest Place that, that can help us think about those things, even though it's it's not always um, super simple and cut and dry of, you know, right. love the church because she's perfect. Well, it's not it's not that easy, but uh, it's still yeah. it's still worth it to love the church. Something I did want to say before we move on, uh, just practical sense. This book comes in a series of books. It's like the the Union series, right? I think they're all published by Crossway. And but they're also all in multiple editions. So there's the loveliest place, which is the the longer version. Um but it, isn't that right, Dustin? Don't they also do an accompanying shorter version? Yes, that's right. Yes. Yeah. So the the longer books um like the loveliest place is also accompanied by a smaller distilled version. And that book, uh, also published by Crossway, is called Why We Should Love the Local Church. Mm-hmm. So each of those books are basically asking a question. Yeah. Uh, if you've read the larger book, then you've also read the smaller book. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the smaller book is the more distilled version, um, perhaps more for a layperson or could yeah. even be used yeah. in the context of a small group study uh, or mm-hmm. a Sunday school class or something like that. Yeah, yeah, I really appreciate offering those multiple formats because sometimes, you know, people uh, don't have a lot of time <laughs> to, to read, yeah. you know, tons of I yeah. mean, pastors love this stuff and they they will churn through some books, you know, many of them. But like you said, lay people, volunteers, people who just you know, have normal jobs and go about their everyday life, but also still love the local church and, and want to know how to, yes. to love it and serve it better. That I think that's a really helpful resource for them. Yeah. So... Before we jump too far into this, I do want to back up a little bit and say, what is the church? <laughs> Can you define <laughs> the church for us so we kind of know what we're talking about as we go along? And since the title of the book describes it as the loveliest place, what is it that makes that so? Mm. Well, that's a good question. It's a good foundation question, really. Um And I would just simply say that God defines the church first by who she is rather than what she does. Mm -hmm. In in chapter 1 of The Loveliest Place, I begin by examining a verse in the Old Testament that really is the foundation upon which the rest of the book is built. And that verse comes from a, a quite unlikely book, just to be honest, and that's Song of Solomon, mm-hmm. uh, chapter 1, verse 15. And the words are this, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Now, prior to about 1800, commentators on biblical books, particularly the Song of Solomon, saw the Song of Solomon, uh, or the Song of Songs, if you will, as an allegorical conversation between Christ and the church. That's why so many commentaries were written on the Song of Songs prior to the year of about 1800. And John Gill, an 18th century English Baptist pastor, interprets it that way as that intense portrayal of the love, union, and communion that exists between Christ and 
his bride, the church. And so mm-hmm. this is Christ looking at his bride, the church, and saying, behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Now, guys, this has nothing to do with what she does or has done, mm-hmm. but it's about her radiating beauty in just being who she is. Mm. Now, what's so amazing is that when we consider that the church is composed of sinners, yeah. once enemies of God, now in her own eyes, the church is full of spots and blemishes and wrinkles and, and dirty, terrible things. Uh, we could have many podcasts pointing out those spots and blemishes that make her sometimes, just to be honest, disgusting to behold. Mm-hmm. But yeah. here the Apostle Paul comes along in Ephesians 5, 27 and reminds us that at the end of the age, the church will be presented to Christ in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And so the church isn't beautiful just because of what she does. She's beautiful because of who she is in Christ, and that has nothing to do with us. And so the church is beautiful because the lens through which Christ regards her is his cross, the focal point of blood and righteousness, forgiveness, union, justification, regeneration, grace. That is, his cross makes her beautiful. Christ's sinless perfection makes her beautiful. It is his sacrificial, substitutionary, sinless blood that washes her garments as white as snow. And so from giving second birth all the way to final glory, the righteousness of Christ creates an assembly of the redeemed that are washed in his blood and made beautiful by the sanctifying power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And so if we go back for a moment to the Song of Solomon, her beauty is so captivating. Did you notice in that verse that he repeats his admiration twice? Behold, you are beautiful. Behold, you are beautiful. And so our definition of the church, our view of the church, must flow out of who she is rather than what she does. Because when you misunderstand who she is, you will never understand what she must do. Mm, and so yeah. that, in, in other words, is, is the full kind of foundation upon which the whole book is built. That's great. Yeah, that's really good. We... Um, uh, Tanner and I used to go to church together back in Phoenix. Uh, and we, we did a series at one point on church hurt. And so a lot Mm. of these thoughts had, had come up and man, we had, as I'm sure at any church, a lot of people who had been affected by things that happened at their church. Mm. Um, and I think taking this idea that you're talking about right here and recognizing that while, there are things that happen within the church. Um, God still looks upon it as beautiful, right? Mm. Uh, as, as washed clean, um, white as snow. And, and that is a beautiful image to take away. Um, mm. I, I really appreciate you kind of digging through that and, and opening up what that means for us. <laughs> yeah. And I think on, as you're talking, I'm thinking, well, I mean, we know this to be true about, us as individuals, right? Christ doesn't love us based mm. on what we do. He loves us based on who we are and who we are in Him mm. and and those sorts of things. So it only makes sense that that would apply to the larger, as you said, assembly of these redeemed yeah. people. Uh, but it but also made me think of one, one other thing, which is um, obviously Christ is very glorious in the way that He redeems sinners as individuals. But Glenn, Glenn and I have been working through this series on kind of... Um, we, we laid this foundation of general identity of who we are in Christ as, as Christians, but then we also try to push into, but, but we have some specificity about us. Like there's things that are unique to me that aren't unique to him. Mm-hmm. And uh, Christ meets us both in those different places. And so it, it, it magnifies my 
picture of Christ to mm. to think about that logically of yes he does that to me but he also does it to all these other people in mm. you know in some ways the same way but in in another sense a million different ways meets them and then that we can actually come together um, despite all those differences because of of his his redemption his saving grace um, it makes mm. it makes me think more beautifully about the church and more beautifully about Christ himself amen uh, yeah yeah. So as as we've we've touched on a couple of times, and Glenn even mentioned there um, that this reality of what we're talking about, this truth about the beauty of the church, goes against a lot of people's experience. Um, mm. Some people have had very intimate experience with the uh, not so beautiful <laughs> parts of the church on, on the face of mm. it. So where where do you start that conversation? If that's where someone's coming from, um, what what hope do you give them? What's what's the kind of first step? you would mm. you would have them take or the first the first thing you would approach in that situation well it it's necessary here to to understand what i'm not saying um i i'm not saying the church is perfect yeah I, i'm not saying the church is always going to do the right things uh, i'm not even saying the church is going to say the right things i'm i'm not saying the church will not hurt you and sometimes yeah hurt you badly. And all of this can can lead us to feel uh, quite apathetic and cold and very indifferent toward the church. But what I want to encourage every listener of this podcast is don't view the church through the lens of God's people who are yet to be fully sanctified, mm-hmm. but view the church through the lens that God in Christ views her. And so that forces us to rivet our focus away from sinful people who make up the body to the head of the body, who is yeah. Christ. There's no perfect church. And some have said, if it was perfect, it it wouldn't be perfect once you got there because you're a sinner. (laughs) And so don't expect a perfect church. But under that, let that be an inducement to you to seek one who has said that he would never leave you and never forsake you. In other words, keep your eyes on Christ and see the church as he sees her as his beloved bride for whom he died. After all, right, it's ultimately Christ that we serve. It's Christ that we worship. It's Christ we glorify. And nothing should stop us from doing that within the context of the local church. And I want readers to to finish this book with that awakened affection for who the church is in the mind and heart of God. I want readers to begin to see the church as lovely and as beautiful as Christ does. I want readers to give and be given in the service of the church that she may be presented to Christ one day without spot or wrinkle. And all you have to do is turn on the news today and see that a great many pastors have hurt people in the church. Uh, A great many church leaders have and continue to hurt people in the church. But I'm imploring you, don't view the church through the lens of that perhaps sometimes unregenerate individual who has found themselves to be part of the church as an organization, mm-hmm. but view the church through the lens that God in Christ views her as his beloved bride for whom he died. Yeah, mm. that's good. I like that a lot. I, th- I think that is a a very practical <laughs> thing too. I, I mean, a lot of times we talk in metaphors and things like that of like biblically how we should do these things. But then when it comes down to the the actual like how, how do I practically do this? I think mm. that is a perfect way to go about it. Um, and it, it ties up a lot of loose ends that people may have who are trying to figure that out. <laughs> yeah. And, and well, we, absolutely. Go ahead. I, sorry. I was just going to, I was just going to reiterate that point and yeah. say, you, you're absolutely right. And, and what it causes us to do is to become very cold and apathetic and very introspective. And sometimes 
the church becomes nothing more than what she can do for me or how mm-hmm. she can serve me or what she can give me. And, and mm-hmm. it becomes so self-centered and, and self-aggrandizing. And, and you have people that leave, leave the church. And I put that in air quotes <laughs> because as a born-again believer, if you are regenerate, you never leave the church. Yeah. Because yeah. once saved, you are placed into the mystical union and communion with Christ, which is his body, the church for whom he died. And so you never leave the church. And so um, what, what I see and what I'm so concerned about is this self-introspection that we have rather than denying ourselves and seeing the church through Christ's eyes. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I'll just say from personal experience, like I get it. It's it's natural, especially when you go through a bad experience, you're often reflecting what just happened and it, you know how has this affected me and what, you know, you're kind of figuring a lot of stuff out and you're, you're often looking inward a lot. Um but it's not helpful to stay there forever. Um, mm. And eventually, what I realized in my own life is um, I had become really guarded, and I didn't want to to open up and and experience. But I was also feeling uh, I was also not having a great experience in the church because I was that way. So it was mm. it was me at the end of the day. Like yes, it's other people. Yes, it's yes, it's scenarios in which I was hurt. Yes, it's. Um, fear that maybe these people won't won't accept all that baggage or those things mm-hmm. that I've had to work through. But at the end of the day, I was the one that was kind of losing out in this scenario, and I had to, to ha- work up the courage to be vulnerable. And then I was met mm-hmm. really graciously in that by all these people who were like, we get it. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. we're, we're also yeah. broken people. We've also been hurt by other broken people, um, despite the fact that that we that we all love Jesus, and that was mm. very healing for me not to um, stay with withdrawn from community forever, but mm. to eventually after after thinking through and like yeah setting some boundaries, but pressing mm. back in and being being accepted and being understood and being heard mm. um, was was really really helpful. You know, yeah, that's good. That's <clears throat> what I've always found interesting too is. Uh, non-believers oftentimes um at least some of the people that i've talked to that just don't go to church don't want to have anything to do with god is because of a negative experience that they've had with the church and so Mm -hmm. they take um it's almost as if they're they're putting their faith in people rather Mm -hmm. than god or they they were trying to put their faith in people rather than god um and so i think again using that lens that you've you've given obviously the non-believer isn't going to just know that that's that's our job as christians to to portray that and walk them through that and get them there um but i i think that also is something that we we see a lot with non-believers and believers i guess too Mm. they Mm. people are putting too much faith in other people rather than in christ um and not taking that focal point well speaking of christ we've talked a lot about jesus uh, but you actually take some time in the book to walk through how each member of the Godhead, you know, is in relation to the church. Um, so I'm curious how how understanding the Trinity, how can that help us better understand the church? Mm. Well, there there's no more robust foundation uh, upon which we can build a definition of the church than the eternal work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In other words, and what I mean by that is it's impossible to view the church except through a Trinitarian lens. And this is because the church belongs to God. The church is his treasure. The church consists of his children and his friends. And to define the church as merely an earthly institution is to completely and totally miss who the church is in God's eternal mind and heart. And the church's beauty only comes into clear focus when we behold her through the lens of God's relationship to her. The church 
was never the plan B in the mind of God. Even when Adam and Eve fell in the garden in Genesis 3 and introduced sin into the perfection of the creation, the church was still God's trajectory for his redemptive plan. That is, God in eternity past chose to set his love upon the church through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and became the father and friend of the church. That is the redeemed people of God. And then it's Christ who brings us the Father. That is, it's Christ who brings the Father near to us through his incarnate work in his virgin birth, sinless life, substitutionary sacrifice on the cross, his glorious resurrection, his triumphant ascension, his present intercession, thus making Christ the second person of the Trinity, our Savior and head. And so the church is the spouse of Christ, and this spouse is given by God the Father to his Son as a reward for paying the penalty for sin. And so the church is intimately united to Christ. It it was Jonathan Edwards who said that the whole world, the whole cosmos was created so that the Son of God might obtain a spouse. (laughs) And so that's the Father's gift to his Son, and that gift is the church. And then we come to the third person of the Godhead. Uh, When Christ ascended back to the Father, he said, I will send you a helper. And we know that helper as the third person of the divine trinity, the Holy Spirit, who becomes our helper and our beautifier, if you will, as he fills, helps, guides, calls, aids, grows, teaches, sanctifies, matures, and intercedes for the church. And I could go on and on. And so you see, the church receives the full attention and the full beautifying work of every person of the Trinity. We have a father and friend, we have a savior and head, and we have a helper and beautifier. And if you do not understand this Trinitarian perspective of the bride of Christ, then you cannot come up with a biblical definition of the church. Definitely something I think that is overlooked. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially, I think people have been saying it for a while now, but we especially tend to overlook the Holy Spirit in all of that um, and Mm. and how he is currently working. I I like the... um, the beautifier piece that you talked about in the book. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's really helpful that we both are... Well, ultimately, it, it's him that's making us spotless, Yes, right? I yeah. mean, so we are spotless through the blood of Christ, having been washed in his blood, but in our sanctification, it's the Holy Spirit that is beautifying us by making us holy and conforming us into the image of Christ so that, as Paul said, as I've already uh, stated from Ephesians, that we will be presented to Christ without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. And it's the Holy Spirit, if you will, who is cleaning off our bridal gown Mm -hmm. from the mud and muck and mire of sin, creating us to be holy fit and beautiful for the day of our marriage with Christ. Yeah. 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 And that's a I mean, that's a really key truth. Both again, this you could think about this on a personal level as well on the on the uh, church level. But we do live in that already, not yet. And as you begin mm. to to grasp that, like we're we're already beautiful in Christ's eyes, but we're also not yet completely made beautiful um, through through the Holy Spirit. That we're in progress until you know Christ returns. Um, but that that helps give you categories for mm. the the uh, uh, differences we see between um, what we know to be true about the church, but often sometimes our experience is, is quite different. That I think that gives you space to, to grapple with that and space to wrestle mm. with those things. Mm. Yeah. Um, so we've talked a lot about 
who the church is, what the church is. But there are some things that the church does. You spend a little bit of time mm-hmm. in the book talking about a few things that the church does. So although, you know, all churches look different, uh, local churches, you know, look different organizationally or denominationally, what are the things that are basic and core to the church that it should do? Well, let, let's go back for, for just a moment to a definition. Sure. Um, the church is the assembly of the redeemed, uh, regardless of whether you're B- Presbyterian, Baptist, Methodist, Anglican, wh- whatever the case. The yeah. church, the true church in the biblical sense is the assembly of the redeemed. That is, those who have been called by God the Father to salvation through Christ the Son. In um, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, uh, the Apostle Peter describes her as being composed of those who are called out of darkness into his marvelous light. And I love that succinct definition of the church. The church is a, an assembly, a body of the redeemed, the bride of Christ. That's the short definition. But if we dive a bit deeper, we can say the church is the corporate gathering of the redeemed citizens of heaven mm. who have been transmitted from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of Christ through his shed blood, glorious resurrection, exalted ascension, and present intercession. And so she is not lovely because of some intrinsic value, but Christ makes her lovely through his redemption. So as that corporate body, that gathering, that living and breathing organism, then we go into what she does and how because of what she looks like, it informs what she does. And so the the chapters in the book that you're referring to are the clear commands of Scripture that should characterize every church that flows out of the definition I just provided. Mm -hmm. The church has a clear command to make disciples of all nations, not amassing numbers, not bragging about the numbers of baptisms that we've had or the outreach that we've had. No, we are called to make disciples of all nations, not amass numbers. Mm-hmm. That's the command. Then we have a clear purpose, the gathering of corporate worship to hear the preaching and teaching of Scripture and the celebration of the ordinances. Now, this is sometimes where you get a little controversial with some people. The church is not for unbelievers. Now, unbelievers are welcome into the church, absolutely. Unbelievers are welcome to come into the church, but ultimately, worship is not about unbelievers. The purpose of the church is the gathering of corporate worship to hear the preaching and teaching of Scripture and the celebration of the ordinances through the means of grace that we might be sanctified and made holy and conform ourselves to the image of Christ. And then we have the church's mission. And so there's a command, there's a purpose, and then there's a mission. And that mission is to evangelize the lost, mature believers, defend the weak, feed the poor, etc. And we could just go on listing things for the rest of the day in accordance <laughs> with the commands of Scripture. So this is what a church that is doctrinally sound and full of regenerate, born-again believers ought to do. We have a command, we have a purpose, and we have a mission. And that's what the core of this book is about. But again, it's built on that foundation of properly defining who the church is through that Trinitarian lens. I I do wonder for people who are listening, if they're attending a church where they're not feeling like those things are being met, um, what what kind of advice might you give them uh, in that scenario? Well, there's a couple things of advice. In, in that type of scenario, the, the first question I would ask is, what are you doing? Are, are you serving in some capacity to bring about these things? Are you submitting yourself to the service of the church, mm-hmm. or are you simply sitting, waiting to be served? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so yeah. 
Are you putting yourself in a context of perhaps volunteering to teach a Sunday school class or leading a small group Bible study? Or have you invited fellow believers into your home? Have you opened the Word of God? Have you just started Have you started a prayer meeting? I mean, what are you doing to bring about and to ensure yeah. that you are part of fulfilling the command, purpose, and mission of the church? Yeah. Because you are and, the church. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah, you you, you yeah. are the church. And so yeah. you, you have to be contributing uh, to what the church has done. And so a, as you mentioned earlier, uh, we're all called to do various things. Everybody's not a hand. Everybody's not a foot. If you had yeah. four feet, what good are you? You know, some people are the eyes, some people are the nose, some people are the mouth, some people are the ears, some people are the hands, some people are the feet, some people are the heart, and we could just go on and on because Scripture paints this picture for us of the church as being a body and its members, the hands, the feet, the mind, the the, the nose, the eyes, the mouth, etc., make up a body. You don't have a body full of eyes, no. But it, it takes the eyes to work with the nose, to work with the hands, to work with the feet, to get from point A to point B. And so as being part of the church, as being the church, if you will, what are you doing? Yeah. Now, if you are serving in capacities and you just are constantly met by opposition, you're constantly met by consternation and all the rest and disagreement of trying to be biblical and you, you're... you're perhaps part of a fellowship that has lost its mission, that has lost its purposes, that is focused on pragmatic issues rather than biblical things, et cetera, et cetera, then perhaps it's time to evaluate if there isn't another place that you need to join with. In other words, life is too short to sit in a context and be miserable and not be sanctified. Your children suffer, your spouse suffers, you suffer. Life is too short. Sanctification is too essential for you to be in a context where you are not constantly fed the Scripture, you are not participating in part of that mission. And so, uh, again, it it may be an aspect that you need to think about looking for another place to serve. And so there's various contexts that that question could be answered, but those are some short answers. Yeah, sure. No, very helpful. Yeah, I I heard an illustration one time I thought was very helpful. As you mentioned, like, we're we're all different parts of the body, and uh, the the kind of joke, but I think it's somewhat helpful is, you know, if you're a nose, you may want, and you walk into a place that doesn't have a nose, you may go, Hey, it kind of stinks in here. <laughs> mm, <yeah. laughs> and so you may notice things like, I don't, I don't like this. And what, what yeah. that actually shows or what could show is that they need, they need that part of the body. They need someone like mm. you to maybe fill mm. some roles that they can't currently fill because they're working without a nose or a hand or a foot. Mm. Uh, and so I just think it goes to, to illustrate your point of like, it, we have to be involved as well, uh, in order for the church to, to be, it, it's fully yeah. functioning self. It needs every part. Yes. Well, speaking of commands, um, uh, of what the church should do, there is one thing you talk about in the book that we're commanded to do as well. And that's to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What mm. does that look like? And why is it so important? Well, in short, that's spirit-led walking. That's mm-hmm. walking by the spirit and not according to the flesh. And a life characterized by spirit-led walking is continuously concerned with growing in Christ-likeness, having our minds saturated with the truth of God's word, having our hearts enraptured in perpetual doxological praise, giving our lives in service to love and help our neighbors, and ultimately glorifying the Lord in all things. Mm. And so to walk in the Spirit is to manifest a life patterned after our perfect example, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a life whose constant desire is to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, Paul said, 
but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's Philippians 3. So uh, a life that is walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called is a life whose overarching desire, according to Paul, is to know him and the power of his resurrection, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I might attain the resurrection from the dead, Paul said again in Philippians 3. And so if it were not for the command to walk by the Spirit, every other command in Scripture would be impossible to achieve. Mm. And so this constant communion and command to walk by the Spirit is nothing more than the pursuit of a life of holiness. And that's one of the most, unfortunately, and this grieves my heart, one of the most controversial things that you can talk about today Mm. is pursuing a life of holiness. I can post Mm. something on Twitter about obeying the commands of Scripture, and people will come out of the woodwork (laughs) to accuse me of promoting the law, 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 law. And it's this idea of hyper grace that we can just live any way that we want to and we can pursue the life of a Christian. Well, that's nothing more than what theologians would call antinomianism. Mm -hmm. And this, this spirit has unfortunately come into the church that we can just live any way we want to, sin the way we want to, and God's just gonna forgive us, and it doesn't matter about this life of holiness or the pursuit of holiness or obeying Scripture. No, that's exactly what walking worthy is about is it is conforming ourselves to the image of Christ, walking by the Spirit, not according to the flesh. That's Romans. That's the whole of Romans. Walking by the Spirit, not according to the flesh, and conforming our lives to the image of Christ so that we individually make up the body collectively in order to be presented to Christ without spot or without blemish. Yeah, and I I think you're right. It's important to... To hold both those things, of course there's grace, but also as as Christians, members of the church who love God, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. <laughs> uh, and so it's, so it's well, both. Well, wasn't it Paul, was, yeah, wasn't it Paul that said, you know, um, do, do you sin that grace may abound? You know, I mean, is is that the mindset of today, yeah. That, yeah. that we just live any way we want to and we expect God to forgive us and Christ to redeem us and, and all the rest? Of course there's grace. I need grace every single day because I sin every single day, every single yeah. moment of every single day. But that doesn't mean I'm not pursuing with ardent affection that I'm not making violence upon my sin, that I'm not killing sin. It was Thomas Watson uh, in his wonderful book, the Puritan Thomas Watson, Taking Heaven by Storm, looking and examining that verse where Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. And that may mean the lopping off of hands and the gouging out of eyes, as Jesus said, not in a physical way, but in a spiritual way of killing our sin that we may contribute to the beautifying of Christ's bride. Yeah. 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 It's graphic, but (laughs) preach that truth. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Amen. So as we wrap up, I want to talk about the way you kind of wrap up the book, uh, which is you have, you have a chapter on on unity, which obviously the Bible makes a big deal about, but it seems like we struggle with it a lot. So I think I think first, uh, why? Why do we fight for unity? But I think also, as much as you can speak to it, how? What does it look like for us to fight for mm-hmm. unity as a church? Well, I, I felt like a book on the loveliness and beauty of the church needed to include a chapter on unity. Uh, but it must come at the end because the bedrock upon which unity is found is in everything that comes before in the previous 13 chapters of the book. In other words, you can't fight for unity 
within the church unless you are doctrinally sound. Mm. You can't fight for unity in the church unless the centrality of Scripture is evident within the life of the church, unless there is an ardent pursuit of the life of holiness and separation from the world, unless the biblical gospel of Christ is known and properly defined, you cannot fight for unity without having the word regarded as the proper operation and function of the church. And so in in chapter 14, I think think it's chapter 14, I, I examined Paul's word in Ephesians Four, verse 4, very simple, where he says, there is one body. Oneness among the people of God is the defining characteristic of the church. Our, our mind, my mind, immediately goes to Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, which abounds with oneness petitions. He prays that believers may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Mm. And, And listen to this part, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Wow. Mm. I think that's an amazing verse. Because what that tells us is this, his people's oneness offers a flawless testimony to a lost world that Jesus is the Son of God. Yeah. But not only are we to be one, the church is to be perfectly one, Jesus says. In verse 23 of John 17, Jesus prays, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. And then here it is again, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. And so Mm -hmm. here this Trinitarian perspective is again, proceeding out of the divine oneness of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the injunction that believers are to mirror such oneness perfectly. And this perfect oneness is bound up in the Father's expression of love to his Son and through his Son to us by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, his people's oneness, that perfect oneness, is a testimony to the legitimacy of love expressed from the Father both to the Son and from the Son to sinful creatures. And so, boiling that all down, the unity of the church is a testimony of the gospel. Mm -hmm. And so, to have disunity is to mar the testimony of the gospel. It's like having a lit candle and putting it under a basket and hiding that basket. Unity is critical because it fosters maturity, doctrinal stability, discernment, a loving vocabulary, Christ-like growth, church-wide equipping, and spiritual building. And without this unity, the world is likely to look at the church and see a human organization devised by creative ingenuity, not a body of divine origin. Mm, yeah. Now, let me say this in closing, and this could just be a sermon, discord plagues man-made institutions. Yeah. Love, peace, harmony, community, fellowship, all that eventually breaks down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jesus is praying that when the world views the church, it will not see a man-made organization, but it will see a divine organism born from God. That is, the church's growing oneness is what defines the church as having an otherness. Why would the world be drawn to an institution filled with conflict, cliques, hostilities, fighting, and division? They, yeah, they they're not. They're not. <laughs> yeah. 
Obviously. I mean, in the past couple of days since this um, Southern Baptist Convention report has been released by mm-hmm. all the horrific sexual abuse that is when went on within churches across the convention, as well as the covering up of some of that. It's mm-hmm. so devastating to read that. Why would the world be drawn to such an institution filled with such things? Well, yeah. it's not. Our yeah. oneness must reflect Christ, who mm-hmm. beams forth his glory in every sphere of the church to make her increasingly beautiful. That's who our oneness has to reflect. And I pick up a a quote here by Charles Spurgeon, who had something to say when the rest of us are silent. (laughs) Spurgeon said this, "'Bless this our beloved church. Keep them still in unity and earnestness of heart.'" In all fresh advances that we hope to make, be with us and help us. Guys, okay. that has to be our prayer. Yeah. To yeah. keep them in unity and earnestness of heart. We have an otherness. And so my question is, are we properly reflecting that otherness in a way that a lost and dying world would be drawn to the bride of Christ? Yeah. yeah. Well, who better than Spurgeon to just mic drop and and <laughs> let's walk on out of here and keep going? Uh, th- that was that was great, Dustin. We're so thankful for you joining us today to to talk about the book and to talk about the church and its beauty. Well, yeah. thank you so much, guys. It's been a it's been a privilege, and I become quite animated with this because I'm just so passionate uh, about this message, and it, it's. We're not hearing this today, and we should be hearing it. What a, what a better message and focus of Christ in an age when the church is struggling to find her footing, and what a better foundation upon which to lay ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. We love it. Well, guys, if you are listening today, we highly encourage you to check out the book or books. <laughs> uh, we definitely uh, check out more of what Dustin is doing. Um, Dustin, again, thank you so much for being on the show, for spending time walking through this with us. We, we truly appreciate it. Thank you. Every blessing to all of you. Thank you so much. We'll see you guys next week. Peace. The Bible and Stuff podcast is a production of Bible and Stuff. We do more than just podcasts, so if you want to know more about something we've covered on the show, just visit our website at bibleandstuff.com. Our show is hosted by Tanner Britt and Glenn Brand, and our theme music is by The Sing Team. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.